This episode of That's My Story Period features an interview with the founder of Period.org, Nadia Okamoto, and a special story by me, your host, Steph Garcia. Today I am speaking with Nadia Okamoto um, of Period.org. Hi, Nadia. How are you? Hi. Um, so let's just start off with um, period.org. Like, can you talk a little bit about why you started it and where it's gone and, you know, what you're hoping for the future? Yeah, for sure. So period, we are a global youth-run NGO that provides and celebrates menstrual hygiene through service, education, and advocacy. And we do that through a number of ways, through the global distribution of period products to people in need. And then we fight for social and systemic change towards menstrual equity. So what that means is trying to change the way people think and talk about periods and trying to make that long-term policy change that's about equitable access to menstrual health products. Great. And, and Go ahead. Oh, yeah. And to do all of this, we like really believe in empowering youth leaders all around the world. So we work through chapter leaders. So we have uh, registered over 230 campus chapters at universities and high schools around the U.S. and abroad. Yeah, that's awesome. So how does it work with um, working abroad as opposed to working in the U.S. with this kind of um, uh, outreach? So a lot of our work is focused in the is focused domestically, right? Because I and I think that's one of the things that makes period really unique is saying like menstrual health and lack of access to menstrual health is not an international problem only. It's it exists here, right? For people who are low income or homeless or just can't afford basic necessities and that like extra ten dollars a month to take care of their period, right? Mm-hmm. Um so most of our work is focused in the US and that's where our like strategic focus is. However, like, you know, menstruation is a huge obstacle internationally. Um It's the number one reason why girls miss school in developing countries. And in a lot of other countries, it is the single, like a girl's first period is the single event that leads to them dropping out of school, getting married early, undergoing female genital mutilation or social isolation. So we do continue to talk about how this is an issue here, but internationally as well in a very um, systemic and problematic way. And I think that our work internationally, you know, like one of our most active chapters is in the Philippines and like chapters like that we work with especially on like just trying to destigmatize periods and talk about it a little bit more um and then we just try to support them in any way that we can to you know facilitate their own distribution to people in need um is there it's a is the philippines like a bit more stigma to it um for young girls and young people going through it you know i think it's different wherever you're talking about i think that the biggest difference is like the stigma is really different in a lot of other places right like Mm -hmm. For example, like in the Philippines, like they might talk a little bit more about periods in a in a in a in a less stigmatized way, but they don't talk about period poverty, right? So like got it. There's it's it's different wherever we're talking about. Yeah. Cool. And um can you just talk about because you started period at like sixteen? Yeah. So I started period when I was sixteen and a junior in high school. Um and I was just my passion for it comes from a really personal place. I founded the organization after my family experience living without a home of our own for a period of time. And it was during that time that I had conversations with homeless women who were in much worse living situations than I was in at the time and heard their stories of using toilet paper, socks, brown paper, grocery bags, and things like cardboard and cotton balls to take care of their period. And I think, you know, just had this privilege check and was also really angered by the fact that, you know, human life comes from menstruation and it's been happening since the beginning of humankind. Yet, 
you know, people have to still use trash to take care of the period mm-hmm. and realizing how stigmatized it was in my own life and how like I as a 16 year old feminist was like afraid to talk about periods publicly. Um, and then also, you know, I think what the final breaking point that like really pushed me to take action was learning that in 2014, now the number's 35, but then in 2014, 40 states in the US had a sales tax on period products because they're considered luxury items. Meanwhile, products like Rogaine and Viagra are considered essential goods, right? Yeah. So for me, it was like, oh, are you serious? Like old men hair growth and erections are considered more of a necessity, which is just ridiculous. Oh, I completely agree. Um, do you work on any of those kinds of bills to abolish that luxury tax on menstrual products? Is that- um, yeah. So one of the fastest growing pillars within period is our policy program. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you know, so that includes like we're running this campaign with Thinks, the period underwear company that's mm-hmm. all about getting period products, um, like legislation passed at the local level um, to get period products into school restrooms and available for students. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but also at the state level, talking about the tampon tax. And we have two live petitions, one in California and one in Ohio that are asking and calling on um, state legislators to repeal the tampon tax. That's Awesome. Awesome. And then um, in terms of like, I know that there's, uh, I think New York just said that, um, you know, grades, I want to say through six through 12 will now have free menstrual products. Um, Is that also something that you're helping out with? Or I obviously you're you want it, but (laughs) I didn't know. Well, so yeah, yeah. So that's the program I was talking about of like, we do that nationally with chapters all around the country to pass that legislation in their own cities. Got it. Got it. Um, and so these chapters that are there, are they college based or are they just kind of city based or do you have both? They're high, they're high school and college. So we call them our campus chapters. So mm-hmm. they are usually based on campuses. Oh, awesome. And then you also do a um, period con. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So we hosted our first one in November 2017. And it did so well that we're deciding to triple its size and we're hosting our next one January 26th, 27th in New York City. Um and so we're going to host our next period con here. Um, and it's sort of a gathering of like as many chapter leaders from around the country or the world as possible. And we gather like influencers, legislators, thought leaders, brand representatives in one room. And it's going to be two days um, to talk about like the menstrual movement and how we can continue advancing it. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and she said January 26th, 27th. Is, uh, those tickets won't go on sale. And Are they on sale now? They'll be going out on sale next week. That's awesome. Um, And then you just did a book, too, um, Period Power, Manifesto for Menstrual Movement. Yes, I did. So, yeah, I published my book on October 16th, and it's called Period Power, Manifesto for the Menstrual Movement. And I just published it with Simon & Schuster. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like... I really just wanted to write like a declaration of like this menstrual movement is urgent and we need to work on it like right now. So it's a little is it a little bit of like a how to and also informational? Yeah. So it's like, what is a period? Why is it stigmatized? Why has it been stigmatized? How are we going to fight the stigma and what young people can do to lead that fight? Awesome. Um, And then in your experiences, um, do you have, have you seen change on a personal level? And like, have you seen that there are more and more just um, people in getting involved in, you know, backing this kind of movement? Yeah, I mean, I think like one of the exciting things about the menstrual movement, but also like extremely stressful, (laughs) is that it's it's growing so rapidly, right? And I think like that's why I'm super passionate about it because I think it's a small segment of the overall fight for gender equality where we're actually seeing tangible moves made in um, in advancing the movement, right? So I always say like the end goal is not just breaking the stigma around periods or fighting for access to menstruation. The end goal is gender equality, and unfortunately 
periods are a huge obstacle for achieving gender equality, right? In terms mm-hmm. of equal opportunity to education and healthcare and economic mobility. So I think like for us, like this movement is going really fast and you can see that purely from the number of chapters we're bringing on or the number of press- impressions we're getting or the number of like mainstream media who are talking about this. So I think it is something that's moving really fast and it's been really exciting to watch. Yeah. And can I ask like how many people who don't menstruate are getting involved in this uh, movement? Because obviously people who do have, you know, a whole a personal reason, but those who don't may not or may think like, why are we even talking about this? Um, I don't know. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think like for us, um, like my co-founders, a non-menstruating male identifying guy, <laughs> right? And like we have a lot of male members within our chapter network too, which has been really exciting to see. Oh, that's awesome. I, I mean, because I just think that's so important. It's like, it's not uh, it's not just the people who are experiencing the thing, right? It's the people who are around them too saying, yes, we should be helping out this situation. Uh, so yeah, that, for sure. That's awesome. Um, and so what like, what are you seeing as the future of your organization and just like the whole movement as a whole? I mean, I think we're very much figuring that out right now. We're currently in our strategic planning process, but I think that a lot of our work is going to turn more policy focused because that's something that young people are really interested in and are, is starting to be really effective. Yeah, totally. Um, and how like would young people get involved if they wanted to join a chapter or do more in their community? They can just visit period.org and we have all the information there of how to get involved. Have you seen too, um, I'm wondering, because like when I was younger, um, it seemed like, and you actually even said as a 16 year old feminist, you felt like you couldn't talk about it, right? Like, and that's how I felt when I was first going through it. Do you see now, I feel like because there's so many more people talking about it, um, the, you know, people who are getting it at 12, 13 or 14, is there, is there more um, openness? Like, is there more just candidness about it? Or is there still kind of that under all feeling? I mean, I think that there's still that underall feeling, which is why we're working so hard to like end that and change the way people talk about periods from the very beginning. Yeah, I'm just wondering, like, I guess because one of the things in talking to, um, I mean, it's it's all, all people who are you know have had their period for like a decade or so, but in talking with them, like, that's their perception is that because of the internet, because of the influx of media and all of these different um, storylines and TV shows or whatever, that there's more of a discussion about periods. And I'm just wondering how that affects the younger people going through it now, or if if we just still have a lot of work to do. I mean, I think we still have a lot of work to do, but it, it does really make a difference, right? Like to know what your period is and feel like you've seen the conversation before, you know, when you get it, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you know um, uh, for the the actual education within like the public schools, they do still do the whole like talk and everything because we did a video <laughs> and a talk about, you know, how your body is changing, but it was never, it was kind of like glossed over and it's like, here's a, a, a panty liner and, you know, here's a tampon and go figure it out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of our work is also saying like those conversations cannot be in gender segregated classrooms because yes. we want everyone to know that this is an issue. Yes, absolutely. Um, but is there like more, are, is it more talked about and even the educational way of like, you know, this is really more like how to use these products or these are the products that you can use. This is some stuff that'll happen. Don't worry about it. Um, is that kind of the, the the discussion around it changing, I guess, too, within the education center? center? Yeah, that's what we're hoping for, for sure. But have you seen it kind of changing? 
I think it's more being talked about and we're slowly making progress within the education sector. Cool. Do you have any other, um, I know you have a My Event partnership. Um, is that still going on? Yeah, so we work with them on actually exactly what you're talking about, on sort of that conversation of when people first learn about their periods. Um, you know, how what what are those talking points and how we can run workshops. We run a program called um, Ask Me About Periods with them. That's sort of like bringing um, that first conversation about periods into schools. Awesome. And um, on a social media front, do you guys, um, sometimes when you talk about stuff like this, people are like, oh, we don't want to hear it. <laughs> um, uh, and then, you know, usually there's a lot more like thank yous. Uh, do, do you find a lot of like pushback on social media at all? Um, yeah, absolutely. Like every day, especially when we talk about gender inclusivity. Oh, really? How do you guys yeah. handle that kind of stuff? I mean, I think it's just sticking to what we believe in, right? Like when people push back on us about trans inclusivity or gender inclusivity, we just keep saying, you know, well, that's, we believe that gender and sex are different and we're going to treat it like that and we're going to continue being sticking to our values. Cool. And then um, you guys don't, I know you said you're partnering with Thinks, but in a general, you guys don't have any sort of like one menstrual product or um, menstrual you know, uh, not recommendation, but I know like, you know, one of the things that I always talk about is like, you have to figure out what works for your body in terms of that stuff. But I don't, uh, I know there's an environmental issues with um, a lot of menstrual products and all that. So I didn't know if you, you had any thoughts on just menstrual products overall. Yeah. I mean, in the past we worked with basically every major company, like you buy Kotex, Tampax, but we also worked with Diva Cup, Lunette Cup, Lena Cup in the past. And um, uh, our biggest menstrual cup partner is diva cup right now and salt cup um and we have a program called club cup and cloth where we distribute cups um to people who can use them um do you think on i know you work with a lot of homeless um people too um do you think in terms of those products is you know uh you know cups are reusable 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 right so yeah however being homeless does give its own sort of challenges in dealing with your period so in, in terms of the homeless population, have you seen one thing work better? Or are you moving towards one um, direction with that kind of stuff? With people who are homeless, yes, it's true. Like, men like menstrual pads, like disposable pads are best when there's no access to like bathrooms regularly. Got it. Um, is there... Uh, I was... <laughs> I was like, I was going to bring up environmental, but honestly, like when, in terms of like being homeless, you want to, convenience is king at that point. So um, if someone wanted to donate products to a, a women's center, um, you would probably suggest pads or maybe just contact the center the, itself and see what they're in need of. I would usually say contact the center, but I think that pads are always like the safest way of like, because those can be like universally used and there's less of a need for education. Like when you distribute a tampon to someone, you do have to talk about like when you take it out and how you take care of it. And um, same thing with menstrual cups. So pads are always the easiest. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Um, yeah. And then is there any um, anything else that you want to touch upon? I know like I don't want to like get you... Uh, I want to give you enough time to get out of here. So I just want to make sure um, those are like the big, big things that I wanted to touch on. So if there's any other like um, topic or anything that you wanted to discuss that you think is important for an audience to hear about periods. Um, for sure. I would just say like what we always say is like 
the first step to breaking the stigma is just to talk about periods in a really natural way, right? Like we're not radically trying to change the image of periods. We're just trying to say periods are natural. It's something that more than half of our global population experiences on a monthly basis for an average of 40 years of their life. And like, it's something that we should treat as natural too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think like, again, like I would go back to the people who don't menstruate. I think talking with them in the way of making it seem, I mean, it is normal, like talking about it in that way that like, this is a thing that happens and you need to know how to talk about it as well and know um, that there's no shame in it and there's no embarrassment in it. Um, Exactly. It's super duper helpful. Um, Okay. And then lastly, like where can people find you online? I know period.org, but um, any other social media um, they can find me at, at Nadia Okamoto, N-A-D-Y-A-O-K-A-M-O-T-O, or just follow us at Period Movement on social media. Great. And your book is available on Amazon. Yes. Period Power is available wherever books are sold. Great. And PeriodCon is January 26th and 27th in New York City. Yep, exactly. Awesome. Thank you so Amazing. much. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, my name is Steph Garcia. And I got my period at age 12. Uh, I'd like to put a trigger warning before this uh, story for pregnancy loss, just um, to warn you. So, uh, but I'm going to start at the beginning of my period. Um, my period growing up was a beast. <clears throat> I got it. I got it about eight times a year. I got it for about two weeks at a time, and it was pretty heavy the entire time. I got cramping. I went to lie down in the fetal position for the whole time. On top of it. Um, my mom uh, would only really use the Kotex overnight. So they were huge and bulky, no wings, and I was constantly leaking everywhere. Um, My period escalated around when I was like 19, 20, 21. I would get nauseous. I would vomit. Again, like I just didn't want to leave my bed. It was awful. So I finally went on birth control. I went on orthotricycline low. And I was like, oh, my God, this is, <laughs> this is what a period can be. Um, I became regular. The cramping went down. Um, my period flow was, like, so manageable. Uh, and I was, like, super diligent. I was like, I'm going to take my pill the same time every day. I know this is the best way for this to work. And it really, really did. I was on it for a long time until my husband and I decided we should try for a kid. So um, I was really freaked out. <laughs> Not necessarily for to getting pregnant, but um, I re- was really worried about my period coming back. Um, luckily, I got pregnant really quickly. My pregnancy was super easy. My kid was great. Um, but as soon as I had her, um, I went to my gyno and I was like, what, you know, put me on something because I didn't want to deal with my period. And so I, I was breastfeeding at the time, so she gave me um, a pill, and I don't re- remember which kind it was at this point, but um, it was one that was safe for breastfeeding. And um, the problem is when you have a newborn, uh, you forget everything. So <laughs> I wasn't taking the pills at the same time every day like I had been. And so um, once I stopped breastfeeding, I was like, please, all I've, I've heard about these IUDs. I'm, I'm so like all over the place now. Um, I don't even want to think about taking a pill. So I got the Mirena. Um, the beginning of the Mirena was a little um, crazy for me in like the first week. And then it was fine. And then my period went away. And then um, my husband and I started talking about, hey, we should start thinking about this second kid. And so I went again, and I I was like, hey, can you take this IUD out? Um, And in my head, I'm like, oh, let's just keep keep my fingers crossed that I just get pregnant quickly again, and I don't have to deal with my period. 
Um, and so, and it's so funny that, you know, I'm, I'm the host of this podcast and all I keep talking about is how I don't want to deal with my period, but that's partly why, um, I started it. So, um, uh, so I got the IUD out and, um, about two months after I got a period that lasted more than two weeks and I was like, well, fuck, I guess I'm not avoiding it this time around. And I was bleeding for two weeks and it was heavy and it was annoying and then it was like spotting and I was like oh you know this is really bad and then I I was spotting a little more and I was like oh this is really bad I guess my body like the IUD must have messed something up in there and now my body's like oh fuck you now I'm coming back with a vengeance but uh two weeks after I took I took ovulation tests and I was ovulating so I was like well let's get this over with and you know stop this nonsense right in its tracks and then I took um the pregnancy test and so um, so it, an addendum to this story is that I had been planning to go on this retreat with 200 moms <laughs> up in the woods and some cabins. And I was really, really looking forward to this retreat. And I, um, I was on like, a, I was on a committee. Like this is how excited I was for this retreat. And I was going to stay in a cabin with like 12 other people. And I was still like stoked. Um, and so, uh, and so that was coming up. And so on Sunday night, like all leading up, I had been cramping. Um, and I told my husband, I was like, I think I'm pregnant. This doesn't really feel right. And all of this bleeding, but I think I might be pregnant. And I got the, I got three pregnancy tests and they all came out positive. And so Monday morning, I called my gyno, and I was like, uh, I just want to take this blood test just to make sure I'm pregnant. And so they scheduled me for Friday, and then I actually called back because I was supposed to leave Friday for this retreat. And I was like, let me go in Wednesday to get my blood drawn, and then, you know, hopefully I'll have the result back on Friday. Because I'm like, maybe there's something else in my body that's, like, triggering this pregnancy thing. So I go on Wednesday, and I tell the, the nurse, and I was like, hey, will this be Friday? And she's like, we don't know. She's like, we can rush it. And I was like, yeah, if you can rush it, that'd be great because I'm going on this retreat. <laughs> and I want to, there's also going to be wine, you know what I mean? And I'm a, a responsible adult. Um, so I was like, I just want to know for sure um, before uh, I go on this retreat. And she's like, yep. So Friday, I call in the morning and um, I get the front desk and I'm like, um, hey, I, d- I got this blood test. And she's, and she's like, well, you know, your doctor isn't here until Tuesday. And I was like, well, is it positive? And she's like, yeah, it's positive. Congratulations. I was like, great. Um, I was like, can you just leave a note for my doctor? Because I have some questions. At 2 o'clock, I get a call from another doctor in the office. And she's like, um, and, and so in my mind, <laughs> in my mind, I'm thinking she got the message from my doctor, right? And so she calls and she goes, um, hey, uh, um, I'm calling about your results. And I was like, oh, cool. I only have a couple questions. And she goes, oh, well, I wanted to, uh, well, why don't you ask me what you, uh, let me just tell you what I was going to say. And folks, I, I was eating a slice of pizza and I literally stopped eating the slice of pizza <laughs> It was pretty much the only, the first thing I ate all day. It's an important part of the story for later. And I sat down on the floor of my kitchen because that is the shittiest way for a doctor to start a conversation. Not that she was being shitty, but in your mind, you're just like, well, this is not going to lead to anything good. So she goes, uh, she says, you know, your, your HCG 
levels, which HCG is like a pregnancy hormone. So your HCG levels are at 19,000. And for where you're at in your pregnancy, they should be around 5,000. And I was like, well, that's not good. <laughs> and she goes, normally that wouldn't be so worrying, but um, also your progesterone levels should be around like a nine or 10. And we get worried at five and yours are at four. And I was like, oh, okay. So I started crying because as you do, someone's telling you your body is all messed up. And so you start crying. And so, uh, and then she, you know, was trying to be like really nice about it. She's like, it could be nothing. Maybe I'm being paranoid. Um, she goes, it could be a molar pregnancy. It could be a topic pregnancy. She goes, or it could be twins. And I don't, I don't ever want twins. But in that moment, I was like, I will take the twins. Please give me the twins. Um, and so, you know, and then, uh, so I said, well, here's the other thing. Here's one of the questions that I had. I've been having all this bleeding. And her response was, well, usually I wouldn't be concerned, but because of all these levels. And then I was like, okay, so I have to, I, I'm going on this retreat. I am literally leaving today. And she's like, oh, <laughs> she's like, actually, um, what I would say is either you can come in for an ultrasound today or you can hang around a hospital all weekend just in case and come in on Monday for the ultrasound. And so I was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm coming in. So um, so I started driving over to the ultrasound, couldn't get a hold of my husband on the way over, which was, it was super comforting. And then um, <clears throat> the ultrasound technician was very nice and very French. And she's like, well, it does not look like a ectopic pregnancy and the uterus is empty. But you think you see this ring of fire? Oh, uh, that's all blood. Um, also, I can't do a French accent, so I don't even know why I tried. Um, and so <laughs> she goes... Um, I think I think they'll give you a shot and uh, and that's it maybe. But first, I, I don't know. Maybe you talk to the doctor. Well, so the doctor, so my doctor's out. The doctor who called me wasn't even in the office. So now I have a third doctor who comes into this room. Now, mind you, all this while I'm like on the phone with my husband, like I don't know what's going on. Can you pack my bag for this retreat? I'll text you a list of things, y'all. I was staying so optimistic. I was like, maybe I can still go. So the third doctor comes in, lovely, and she's just like, what's going on? <laughs> so I explain everything, and then she goes, why are you here? Like, why are you even here? Uh, because what happens is, for those who don't know, is that usually you don't really go in to see your doctor until you're about seven or eight weeks pregnant, and I was around five. Um, and so for me to even do a blood test is like nonsense like people don't really do that but again I was like I just didn't feel right I really want to go on this retreat and like know whether or not I was pregnant and so I just happened to rush it and so then uh so then when I told her about the retreat she's like huh. <laughs> everyone doesn't want me to go on this retreat so anyway she came back with my options one of which was to wait it out and she said it's not a good idea the second one was this shot thing that the um, French ultrasound tech had mentioned but she said because of my levels so it's basically like a chemo shot that kills the pregnancy. And she said, because of my levels, um, I would actually have to have a multi-dose shot uh, and then go into the hospital both Saturday and Sunday, probably Monday, and then go in like every three or four days until all of the levels have gone down um, to monitor it. Uh, and then the last one was surgery. And uh, no one wants surgery ever. I mean, at least I don't. Um, so I was kind of like, okay. And she's like, and with the surgery, there's the... Um, possibility that you're going to lose a fallopian tube. And I was like, cool. What? <laughs> cool. Like this weekend was supposed to be a retreat and now I'm going into surgery and maybe 
losing a fallopian tube. So, um, the, you know, I was just like, all right, I guess surgery is the option. Um, the doctor was able to schedule it for 8 p.m. that night. And, uh, and she was like, oh, I only had to make two phone calls. Usually it's like 10. So I was like, cool. So back to the pizza thing, um, because the anesthesiologist um, came in and was like, well, what, when was the last time you ate? And I was like, well, I know it's 2 o'clock because they called me and I stopped eating for the day because I did not know what's going on. And he was like, well, uh, usually I wait till 10 o'clock. And my doctors, man. Oh, because the doctor who called me ended up coming to the surgery. So I had two doctors at the surgery. And they were like, no, 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 no. This is an emergency surgery. I like to imagine that they said something along the lines of, nah, bitch. But I get it. I mean, like, the anesthesiologist was just trying to do their job. Um, but, yeah, so I had surgery, lost a fallopian tube. I was home by midnight with some Percocet in my bag. Um, we, Our babysitter had like was almost home, and she turned around to come and watch our daughter because you can't have kids under 12 on operating floors, which we learned the hard way. Um and, uh, yeah, when I called my doc on Monday to check in, one of her first questions was, do you have FOMO from missing the retreat? So I assumed my surgery went fine. Um, anyway, uh, I just wanted to tell that story because I know we talk a lot about listening to your body and, and, and knowing what feels right and what feels wrong and knowing that you should advocate for yourself and, you know, part partially why I got it. Why I did do the blood test was the retreat, but you know there was already so many things that did that felt off um, that I'm really really glad um, that I was able to catch it because they said that the um, ectopic pregnancy, which <clears throat> for those that you don't know, an ectopic pregnancy is when um, the egg is in the fallopian tube, um, and if it bursts, you can get a lot of internal bleeding, um, and it can be really 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 terrible. Um, so anyway, so they caught it. And they had said, had I gone to the retreat, there's a good chance that it would have burst in the middle of the woods, uh, which would have been really, really bad. Anyway, that's my story, period. Thanks for listening. That's My Story, period, is edited by Veronica Gruba and hosted by Campfire Media. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to get in touch with the show, email periodpodcaststories at gmail.com.